0: As we're growing at 50% to 100% year over year, with all this level of customization is a uh, very challenging problem statement. Supply chain leaders don't think that you can be cost competitive and still get parts that are closer to home, home being for us, the United States, and I would challenge that. Uh, I think as a senior leader, it's part of your obligation. If, you know, if you've made it this high, you have a good job and you love what you do and you're paid well, It's, it's find a way to give back.
1: Welcome to the Supply Chain Show, featuring compelling interviews with remarkable supply chain leaders. Listen in as our guests share their insights on today's supply chain challenges. I'm your host, Crystal Lee, a principal consultant with Oliver White. Today as our guest, we have Josh Ensign, Chief Operating Officer at Proterra. All right, thanks for being here today, Josh. Why don't we get started by having you share a quick introduction?
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, Crystal. I'm glad to be a part of this. Uh, My name is Josh Insign. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for Proterra. Proterra is a company that makes 100% battery electric buses. So you can kind of think of our company as uh, the the Tesla of the bus world. Uh, As a matter of fact, I've been with Proterra about four years. But before Proterra, I was at Tesla. I was the Vice President of Manufacturing there. Uh, and before that, I spent about 11 years at Honeywell International and uh, all sorts of different supply chain and manufacturing roles. Uh, and I started my career as a U.S. Army officer uh, stationed in Germany doing supply chain and logistics. And my role at, at Proterra is—it's uh, changed a lot. Uh, I've had multiple functions today. I'm in charge of all the manufacturing supply chain and field service. But over the past four years since I've been at Proterra, I've also been responsible for engineering program management human resources uh, it a lot of changes over the four years but today it's manufacturing supply chain and field service
1: that's awesome i'm I'm sure there's so many things that you could tell us about yourself what's the most important thing we should know though
0: the most important thing is that uh i'm a father first and i think when people see big executives and they see how much time we spend in the office or traveling or on calls or how responsible we are to texts and emails, they probably think that we don't have families or don't have time for families. Uh, but what they don't see is I, I, I do carve out a very specific time for, for my kids, and uh, I make sure that during those times, they get my undivided attention. And uh, that is the thing that's most important to me is being a, uh, a successful father.
1: Do your kids know what you do?
0: They do. If you were to ask them, uh, they would probably say, my dad builds cool stuff. Um <laughs> I think when they were really little, I was building things for airplanes. So uh I was part of a Honeywell's aerospace division building all sorts of different things that go into an aircraft. Uh then I was at Tesla building the Tesla cars as a VP of manufacturing, and they very well know what the, the Tesla is and uh familiar with that vehicle. And now I build buses. So I think they would just think they think that builds cool stuff. Uh beyond that, they they wouldn't probably be able to articulate what I actually do.
1: My kids always say that um, I boss people around. <laughs> they say you're oh. always you're always telling people what to do. I, say, I don't tell. At, them at what work or do. at home. Yeah, maybe at home. <laughs> maybe at home. Yeah,
0: I do. I do take my kids uh, to the factory. So I, they they were in the Tesla factory multiple times, uh, and they've been to the bus factory, one of the bus factory in L.A. as well, and uh, the battery factory in uh, in San Francisco. So. I want them to see and experience what we're what I'm doing, uh, so it gives them a little bit more perspective.
1: Yeah. Do you think it'll influence their career choice at all? Or are they starting to show some interest? Um, I I don't know. Um, I think
0: you plant the seed early, and we see if it grows. Uh, will be most important to me is they pick something that they enjoy doing every day when they go to work, right? Because if you don't do that, then it's just a it's a slog. But if they can figure out something uh, that they will enjoy doing when they wake up and they're excited to, to get to work to do it. Uh, that's what will be most important. We'll see. My guess would be probably won't be their career path. But it's hard to say. I didn't think it'd be my career path.
1: Why is that? What, what did you think you would start with?
0: I'm uh, quite an outdoorsman. So if, if you think of um, an outdoor activity, whether it's uh, biking, hiking, camping, backpacking, running, surfing, scuba diving, snowboarding. I have all the gear and I do it all. And so growing up, I wanted to do something that was going to be uh, outdoors-ish. It was a career. And so I got a degree in civil engineering and my original plan was to be like construction management because you get to be outdoors all the time and you're interacting, and you're active and you're not just uh, behind a spreadsheet. And so um, didn't, didn't end up in that path, but with manufacturing, you still get to be out in a factory interacting with people. and there's certainly a part of uh, the day-to-day life and activity that is very computer-based and zoom call based these days. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but overall it's a, it's a pretty good mix of getting out of your chair and interacting with people and leading um, versus just uh, interacting with the computer.
1: Yeah. On the best days. Right. I, I remember before I became a consultant, of course I was spend a lot of time in industry and my best days, my most favorite days were when I was in the plants. Um, and I spent some time in supply chain ops, but even before that, before I got into supply chain, I always wanted to be in the plant. That's how I, actually how I got into it. Cause I wanted to be in the plant. Those are really the best days.
0: I like to say that's where the action is, but, uh, maybe some of the other functions would disagree. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. What's a really good day look like for you right now?
0: Like my favorite type of day or a standard day?
1: Let's hear both.
0: A standard day is make sure I exercise in the morning. So I usually get up, I wake up around 4.30 exercise from five to six, uh, shower, grab something to eat, and I start my day around 6.30 in the morning. And these days, it's a series, unfortunately, it's just a series of, of uh, a lot of conference calls and a lot of meetings. The ideal day though is more, um, I'm uh, at one of my site locations, and uh, I wake up and I do the same routine where I exercise, but then instead of starting my 6.30 day with a conference call, I start my 6.30 a.m. day uh, with a shop floor, like Gemba walk. Uh, and I'm there for factory startup, Um, I'm there for uh, the the morning Gemba activities, and I get to spend time on the shop floor interacting with the people, doing skip levels, town halls, sometimes being on the assembly line, um, building something or helping helping build something and just trying not to uh, make a mistake while I do it or create a quality defect while I do it. Uh, So that's more of an ideal day.
1: So switching gears just a bit, um, you know, oftentimes leaders like yourself have really standout or marquee business transformations or improvements that they've been a part of. When you think back over your career and the stuff that you're doing right now, do you have one of those? Does something stand out for you as um, really important in terms of improvements that you've been a part of?
0: There was one big uh, activity or uh, project that I think for me was a, uh, a uh, career accelerator. it was kind of like a fork in the road. And, uh, I'd been a purchasing director at the time I was working for the Honeywell's automotive business. And I was managing about, I think it's $350 million of, of this commodity spend. And I was asked by the leadership team to leave California and move to Shanghai, China and lead a project uh, where we were doing some restructuring and the plan was to shut down a factory that we had in japan and move that to a brownfield site in china i guess at that time i was maybe 32 and so as a a young american uh, leader going to live in asia and then deal with these two complex cultures between japan and china and all the history that goes with that and this, the fact that you're shutting down a factory and moving it to China, and the teams that you're leading are teams of folks that were from Japan and China, and then the project management team actually were folks from India. That was a, a pivotal project. Uh, in the end, we ended up uh, the best thing for the the company was not to shut down that site, but to downsize it. So, but we did move probably 80% of the production out of Japan and into China, uh, and it was very successful. And we. We did it under budget. We saved more money than the company thought we would be able to do. Uh, and we we completed the project uh, ahead of schedule. And uh, that I think got me a lot of visibility and kind of put me on the roadmap. And then my next job from there was, uh, I moved from China to Switzerland that could become the VP of operations for Honeywell's turbocharger business. And I remained in that role for four more years, uh, living in Switzerland and, and uh, running those, uh, 14, uh, factories. Mm.
1: I spent some of my career building some turbochargers, but not for Honeywell, one of the competitors. I, I remember that I
0: <laughs> <right>. Cummins, Cummins <laughs> if I remember correctly. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. So, okay. So take us back to this moment where you get asked to do this project. You're 32, you're sort of up and coming in your career. You're going to move international. You've got clearly a really big project. What's going through your mind? Are you, are you jumping out the bit to go or are you excited to go? Or are you hesitant? How'd you make the decision?
0: Well, to answer that correctly, I got to rewind in time because about eight months before that I had been asked to, to go to Mexico and be the plant manager at a factory in Mexico. And that to me was the ideal job to run a factory. Um, and that was what I wanted to do, but I had just gotten married, uh, or maybe I was getting married and my, uh, my fiance at the time also had a big career and so we had to make these very tough decisions because for me it's all i wanted to do i wanted to go to mexico i wanted to run this factory but for personal reasons i had to turn that opportunity down and i felt at that time that man that my my career path my goal has always been to be a coo that has been my career goal for uh a long time and so I thought I by by turning down that that factory plant manager job because uh, there's only a few of them right there was you know 12 factories at the time and to get sort of win the lottery to have the opportunity to go run one of those factories was a big deal and I, but I turned it down and so then six or eight months later this opportunity came and I frankly felt like I couldn't say no these big opportunities only come around a couple you know a few times in your career and you gotta you got to take them sometimes, and it's not always going to be convenient for you or for the family, or the timing's not always right. And so, in my mind, I, I was like, no matter what, I have to say yes to this because you don't get too many of these shots. And, um, but then I, I was excited about the international opportunity. I've always liked to travel, I love different cultures. And so, for me, uh, you know, especially China, hotbed for manufacturing. Like, if you're going to go experience manufacturing uh, in a foreign country, there's no better place than, than China. So uh, I was super excited. I'd say my wife was maybe not as much, um, but uh, we made it work. And uh, it was a great uh, personal experience and career experience both.
1: What was the hardest part?
0: It was really being away from family. You're not around, you can't just be there for Thanksgiving or pop in for somebody's birthday. Uh, So you have that and you have the time zone element. Living though in China was frankly quite easy. There's a, a ton of expats. Uh, people are super friendly. The younger generation all speak English. Uh, the older generation doesn't so, but you can still get around. You can talk with people. You can converse a bit, uh, so I I didn't have a problem with like the language, the culture, the food, the, 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 the unique environment. It was more just, you miss your friends. You miss your family. You're not, uh, you know, if you love college football, you're not watching college football on Saturday on the couch, right? It's, it's different. You give up a lot of the things that you are uh, used to, uh, you take for granted in America, and that stuff just doesn't exist there, and you have to learn to live differently, but it's it's a good difference, a good personal experience.
1: Yeah, when you think about the project itself, it sounds like it was a really good success. Is there anything that you really wish you would have known going into that? So here you are, you've got these facilities, you're meant to be closing one, moving it to another location, you end up not doing that, but what do you wish you would have known about the business environment or about those facilities or those organizations before you started the project?
0: I could have used more uh, cultural training or having a better cultural understanding of how how the different cultures are. And I got some training go- going over to China because I was going to live in China. And so you know, this, I think they set me up with a consultant to tell you how what to do and not to do living in China. But the dynamic between the Japanese and the Chinese is is quite interesting, and in Japan, age matters, and so the, the people that are at the top are usually the elders. And the folks in Japan weren't super interested in what this 32-year-old American had to say. They were taking all their <laughs> orders from like uh, the Japanese godfather, uh, who was you know the president of Honeywell Japan and so what i didn't realize going into this project is even though i had been sent over there and the project was blessed at all levels within honeywell and this is what we were going to do uh the local leaders were not bought in and so the first part of the project was creating this personal relationship and trust with the leaders in japan to get them almost to agree to to support this project because without them supporting it at the top level the the resistance throughout the rest of the organization would have made it I don't want to say impossible, but it would not have been successful, let's just say it that way. So that cultural dynamic is something I, I underestimated.
1: Sounds like a lot of challenge with that one and certainly overcame it, which is, um, which is awesome and probably why it stands out in your mind, right? Because you learned a great deal about those challenges and probably about yourself during it. Um, what are you working on right now? What's the biggest challenge that you're facing at this point in your career? This is
0: what we call the bus business, although it's not just bus anymore. So, we, we build battery electric buses. Uh, we also have an um, organization called Proterra Powered, where we sell our battery technology and our powertrain technology to other OEMs. And one of, so for example, one of our biggest OEM Proterra Powered customers is Thomas School Bus. It's a, a subsidiary of Daimler. And then we have others, Von Hool and other folks. So, we have the bus business, we have the battery business. And then we also have charging and infrastructure. So when we we can go in and we can sell chargers and do all the construction and infrastructure work for anybody that wants it and needs it. So we kind of have these three elements to our business. But the most challenging part is the bus part or the bus side of that, uh, because of the level of customization, our buses have 2,500 unique parts on every bus. Our average order size right now is uh, 3.8. So for every order, the average average size is 3.8 buses per order. So it's small order sizes and of those 2,500 parts, 40% of them are unique to each order. So it's low volume, uh, high mix, high complexity, high customization. And you add all those things together and then you combine it with a 50% growth rate year over year or more. That is uh, a unique challenge. And so that, that's what we're working with. Sometimes I feel like we're, we're trying to, uh, we're building the airplane as it's going down the runway because we're still trying to, you know, still startup-ish. And so we're still trying to put in processes and the basics, ISO certification and all these things. As we're growing at 50% to 100% year over year with all this level of customization is a uh, very challenging problem statement.
1: How do you prioritize? How do you focus the efforts of, of yourself and your team? In the organization, with all those things going on, you're trying to grow, you're trying to satisfy customers, you're trying to innovate. How do you focus everyone's efforts?
0: That really, I think, starts with the, the executive leadership team, and you know, start. You got to listen to the sales team, right? And so, what 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 do they want? Do they have the product they need to win first of all? And if yes, or uh, then then good. Then we can just focus on optimizing. But for us for the long time, that answer has been no. So we have focused on a lot of product innovation to make sure that we have the best product in the market. And so that has been the priority. Now that we feel very confident that we have the the best product in the market, now our focus is on optimization and profitability. So we are looking at things like doing more lean manufacturing in the factories, starting to look at things that we can automate and how do we scale profitably. And so I'd say today that is Scaling profitably and improving the quality of our product in the field are the top two priorities.
1: And doing all of that in the midst of a COVID world.
0: That's right, yeah. <laughs> that, that, and there's that small wrinkle,
1: Yeah, uh,
0: where it makes travel difficult, uh, getting vendors on site. We just started production last week on a brand new battery factory in Los Angeles.
1: Congratulations.
0: Thank you, thank you. Um, and so this is uh, new technology, new cell technology, and basically that line, the line that we put in LA will have twice the capacity of the line that we have in San Francisco. But the the challenge with that was we mapped out our original, you know, building out this battery factory, part of that launch plan is you have all these vendors from all over the world. We have equipment coming from Italy and Germany and Michigan and all over the place. And of course, the expectation was that those vendors would be here to help us commission all this equipment. But in reality, that they couldn't you couldn't have anybody uh from italy or germany travel to the united states back in april may time frame so a lot of the commissioning activity had to be creative and we did stuff with basically zoom type things or your uh on your on your phone and we did a lot of creative virtual commissioning activities that made it more challenging but we also learned that we we can do it that way uh and we can still be successful and we we actually kept the original timeline, and we launched on time, which was uh, October 12th.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. I think for so many people, the implications of COVID-19 have changed their view of supply chain. They've changed their view of even how we conduct business. Um, Besides the impact to projects like that and the creativity Has COVID-19 changed how you think about the responsibilities of supply chain or the vulnerabilities of supply chain or the requirements for successful supply chain? Has it shaped your thinking or do you think it's just us dealing with yet another unpredictable event that in supply chain we do maybe all the time, just on a different scale?
0: For me, COVID hasn't really changed that because I feel like I've had so many of these experiences. Like if I think back to my career... When I was uh, the VP of operations for uh, the turbocharger business, you had the uh, tsunami in Japan, and I had a factory there, and we had a lot of key vendors there. And then there was this, uh, at one point in time, also there was like this 7.5 earthquake in Mexicali, where we literally had our, our spark plug manufacturing facility split in half by uh, <laughs> the earthquake. And then at one point in time, there was a volcano that erupted in, um, was it Iceland, I believe? And we couldn't get any air flights in and out for our parts. So I feel like the now announced COVID. So supply chain disruption, the COVID part of that is not new. It's, it's part of what we do. I think every time it happens though, it forces you to revisit your strategy. And so f- for us, that means we've been spending a lot more time taking a look at, all right, who are our single and sole source suppliers? And is that still the right decision uh which of these commodities do we need to dual source with a different vendor or which one of these do you stay with the same vendor but at least make sure they are producing your parts in, in two different factories or two different locations because for us with covid my supply chain team did a phenomenal job of uh standing up like a quick reaction team and we had all our vendors and we, were, we were in contact with them every day calling them every day to say What's going on in your factory? Are you still running? Are there any, any COVID things we need to be aware of? And we had a map, a heat map, and we would compare that of the United States. Our product is 75% U.S. made for the components. So all our product is manufactured in the U.S. but the components we use of the components, 75% of those are sourced in the U.S., which is unique. So we had a heat map of the United States and we were taking a look, we compared the heat map like where the COVID hot zones and on that map would be where our vendors are. So, you know, before that, before COVID, I don't know that we could have all told each other where every vendor was located. We didn't necessarily know, but COVID forces you to go, it forces us to go like a, a get more detailed and granular in understanding our supply chain. Who are our vendors? Where exactly are they? Like, is, in Michigan is blowing up right now with COVID. All right, which 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 vendors do we have in Michigan, and and how do we mitigate that if there's an issue? So that was kind of our approach to it is uh, that getting real granular, and then now we've been spending a lot more time on just uh, our strategy with every single part.
1: So when you think about how people are responding to COVID, there's a lot of examples out there of organizations. Um, rethinking their supply chain, they're changing locations, they're looking at sourcing, as you've said. So there's a lot of press, if you will, and a lot of discussion on things that people are doing in supply chain to respond. What do you see as a mistake that people are making? You see anything out there that you wish you could say, hey, you're getting this wrong, we're overthinking this, or we're missing the point? Any mistakes out there that you would advise folks to rethink?
0: Yeah, I think that over the past 10 or 15 years, there's just been, been this big run of manufacturing leaving the United States for basically labor arbitrage, right? Labor costs less in other locations. And I think what we've seen is if you go back even pre-COVID, there was all the tariff activity happening between the United States, and basically tariff wars between the United States and China. So you you have that. Then on top of that you add the COVID situation, where everyone's on travel lockdown, so uh, I, I think that when I take a look at the supply chain, I, and I spent a lot of my time uh, in my career at Honeywell when I was doing procurement, you know, resourcing the parts that we would buy from one location to another, and most often that was in China and India and Eastern Europe. But I think what 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 we're finding at Proterra is that you don't have to source uh, from so from so far away to be competitive. And so I guess my, feedback, my, my answer to your question is maybe a little less COVID specific, and it's a, it's a, it's a little bit more a strategy, I guess, but I think the strategy of we have to buy everything out of India and China and other low-cost regions is a, a bit of a dangerous strategy when you think about what's going on in the world with, again, the tariffs, COVID hits, you can't get a, a buyer in there to see what's going on. You can't get a supplier quality en- engineer in there to go check on your on your parts if you got bad quality. Like It, it is, becomes risky. And so for us, one way to lower that risk is to bring it closer to home. And, uh, and I think that people, supply chain leaders, don't think that you can be cost competitive and still get parts that are closer to home, home being for us, the United States. And I would challenge that uh, a bit. Yeah,
1: that's really good insight. And there's a theme that's coming out with what you're sharing today. And it comes back to strategy. You've mentioned that word a few times now, and really repositioning the supply chain decisions and the business decisions that have to be made, positioning them not from a, how do we react to this situation? And how do we manage costs through this situation, for example, but how do we align to our strategy? What is our strategy as it relates to running our business? What's our strategy related to our supply chain decisions? And I love how that just pulls us out of this reactive mode that we can oftentimes so easily fall into and puts us in more to where are we driving the organization? What are we planning to do? What are we committing to do and puts us back in the driver's seat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the term that we use supply chain folks is plan for every part. And uh, I think that you really need to be deliberate in your decision with every part. And I think if supply chain leaders were really to to map it all out and go part by part and say, why are we buying this part from this vendor in this location? I think you'll often find that we're doing it out of habit or that's just because that's who has always supplied that part. And maybe that was a good decision back in the, in the day when it was first made, but with all the changes that are happening in and around us, having a process, uh, a management operating system by which you, you do that, you review that on some sort of consistent basis, each part, each vendor, and still make sure that your, those decisions are the right ones must be part of a, a management operating system for a successful supply chain. And it may be that you should still buy that part out of Asia or out of India, or maybe you still should only be single or sole sourced on that part because it's just too expensive to buy the tools or to cut a vendor's volume in half. But as long as it's a deliberate decision, I think that's the key because most often I find that it is not.
1: All right. Switching gears a little bit. So it was always your career goal to be a COO. And now you are one. Yes. Is it what you expected?
0: Yeah, I think so for the most part. Yeah, I, I wanted just to be one of the C-level leaders and have influence in terms of the strategy and how we operate and to, to get to run the functions that I love to be a part of. We're trying to think what what's not what I expected. I don't know. I think it's probably pretty much exactly what I expected.
1: What's next? Do you have a, a career path from here? Do you have ambitions for how you want to spend your work life or your free time. What's coming up next for Josh?
0: When I mentor folks or I give feedback, I always tell people think in like five-year chunks because for me, five years is, if you're a high potential employee, you're, you're in a it's like two jobs for you, right? You can make two moves in that, that period of time. And so I try to do the same thing for myself, where do I want to be in five years? But step one for me is right now I've been the COO at Proterra for four years. And I've got the startup experience of going from building like one bus a month to where we are today, which is a significant increase. But what I want to do is I want to be a COO at a public company. And so that is my next step. And I'd like to to do that for a while and get that experience of being under the spotlight. I won't call it limelight because I think it will be more painful than that. Right. But just dealing with the investors and and wall street and, and being a key player in electrification as a public company is exciting to me. And then after that, if I have the opportunity to be a CEO, that sounds interesting. I think that would be enjoyable. And, or I do like uh, the startup world and I like being able to build a team from scratch. And I like being able to take, you know, early concept to, and you build out the processes and the systems and the tools and the factories and the people and the team, and you get to really create a business from scratch. And so I think my post COO public company role would be either CEO or uh, do this type of thing again.
1: You mentioned mentoring others on their career path and their career ambitions. Do you have mentors? Do you have a network of people that you rely on for counsel? So as you look to navigate this plan ahead, who's helping you out or where do you get your support for major decisions or counsel when you're in a tough situation?
0: Yeah, it's a wise uh, question, Crystal. I think it's really important to maintain network as you go through your career. And uh, I find today that... The degrees of separation between me and other people or other companies is like one or two i can almost always find somebody in my network where i can call and say hey what's going on at this company or we have this you know you're a vendor of ours and we're having this issue or whatever it is so i i spend a lot i do spend a good amount of time staying in touch with the people i've worked with in the past uh more specifically to answer your question My mentor base has been, well, first of all, I've I've had some fantastic bosses in the past and I probably don't do a good enough job keeping in touch with them, but the folks I keep in touch with the most are people that have worked for me in the past and or peers of mine from the past that have all come up within their, their individual organizations. And so it's easy to have the, what should I do here conversations with people that you've been in the trenches with before, because they know you, you have some of the same experiences but now they've taken their skill set to a different company, a different industry. And so when COVID hit, you know, I was called picking up the phone. We were all doing it and saying, hey, um, Victor, man, like what's going on? How you, you're running, you know, you got 30 factories over at company X. What are you guys doing with COVID? Like, what, do you, have you done temperature checks? or?" And we would bounce these ideas off each other. So um, I think by... My network's quite large that way, and it's, it's a combination of uh, people that have worked, uh, my peer group, and people that work for me that are now at a similar level or maybe just one level below me.
1: It's one of the goals of the podcast, actually. When we first started this initiative, we really just wanted to connect people with their peers, you know, because it's helpful. It's helpful. We, we all need um, inspiration from time to time. We need a place to share ideas and I think all of us as leaders like to hear what other people are facing and, and how they're approaching it to get some ideas for how to get through it. And
0: absolutely. And I think it also helps, to be honest, it helps a lot with like staffing and hiring. Just this week we're looking at a, a pretty big role to bring into our organization. And I, I looked at this person's resume and I'm like, Oh, I bet he knows so-and-so. so and so. So go to the phone, call so and so. And sure enough, she's like, Oh yeah, I know I know that person. He's great. And if I had a spot on my team, I, I would i give them an offer in a second. And so uh, that network helps with that as well. Because at the end of the day, it is a small world when it comes to manufacturing and supply chain.
1: It really is. It's really great um, to hear that from you, Josh. So oftentimes when I'm coaching new and emerging supply chain leaders on their career choices, so every now and then I'll get some phone calls and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking about. What direction should I go? And particularly, again, for new leaders there sometimes can be this sentiment that they have to figure it out on their own. And that's part of being ready. You know, it's part of being an effective leader. It's part of demonstrating their capability and their worth as a leader is being able to make the decisions on their own. But actually, as we hear from you and and had the conversation with the last guest on my podcast as well, is this continuous theme of saying, no, that's not the case. We don't have to figure it out on our own. And in fact, there's a risk if we do that there's this tremendous benefit from leveraging the experiences of the people around us.
0: Absolutely. I agree completely. I think if I, if I think back through my, uh, my career, I've had a, lo- a lot of big roles at kind of a young age. And if I felt like I had to make all those decisions and all those calls on my own, that would have been a very scary place. But luckily I had great bosses that would help coach me and mentor me to get me to make, to get me to the right decision or help me learn what I need to know to make the right decision, but if people are feeling that they need to shoulder that responsibility, then that, that's, that is not the case. And like you said, it's, it's kind of, it's actually dangerous to do so because there's people in the organization or through the network that have probably been there and done that and have some experience with it and can, can share some wisdom on on how to, how to make a tough call in a tough situation or how to navigate potential landmine.
1: Yeah, the the first part of your career, as you describe it there, resonates deeply with me. That's exactly how my early career was, uh, moving very quickly into leadership positions and had some incredible mentors along the way, some of which I still am in contact with, even now that I've crossed the dark side out of industry into consulting, <laughs> but um
0: Uh, Now I'm going to, the first thing I do after I get off this podcast is I'm going to send a note to one of my old bosses. I I feel like I, that is overdue. So thank you.
1: You want to give him a shout out?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Pasquale Abrusese, who's, uh, who now is, uh, has a big role at, uh, Aptiv. Uh, and so there's a bunch of ex-Honeywell guys that are Aptiv. But when I think through all my operations and supply chain leaders, um, he probably doesn't even know this, but Pasquale Abrusese is the one that I feel like, uh, I've learned the most from, uh, and he gave me just great career opportunities and and believed in me and trusted me and then helped make sure I didn't screw it up along the way. So.
1: My guess is he, he remembers more than you think for sure.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll send this to him. So.
1: (laughs) Very good. All right, Josh, any last thoughts for us?
0: For big supply chain leaders that are listening to this, I think it's important that we find ways to give back. So when you take a look at, uh, just what's happening across the globe or what's happening in in the United States right now. There are uh, are a lot of us that are very fortunate to have big jobs and get paid well and do things that we love to do. Uh, And there's a lot of other people that would like to be in our situation, but cannot for whatever reason. And so one thing I try to do is I try to give back and uh uh, close to my heart is is, uh folks that have been incarcerated and so one of the uh, organizations that i was involved in pre-covid it's kind of hard to do it now but it's called the five ventures and the five ventures is basically what you do is you go into the correctional system and you work with individuals that are um, going to uh, be released from uh, uh, correctional facilities and you help ready them for the real world right you do resume look at resumes you do uh, help them with interview skills and that to me was very, uh, rewarding personally, can't really do that right now. <laughs> not letting, uh, with COVID you're not, you're not getting into a prison to go do work on that stuff. Unfortunately, cause there's still people that need that help and are getting out, but that, and then also just, uh, try to do stuff for the the homeless. There's just uh, we have this terrible homeless uh, situation in the United States. And, um, we find ways to get back and help there too. So. Uh, I think as a senior leader, it's part of your obligation. If, you know, if you've made it this high, you have a good job and you love what you do and you're paid well, is, is find a way to give back.
1: Thank you for that. It's a a compelling uh, moment of reflection that should challenge us all, right? And think about what we can do to give back. Maybe that's our email that we'll send today, Josh. So you're going to reach out to Pasquale and, and we're going to go back and Uh, reach out to some organizations that we can give back to so Uh,
0: that would be great that would make me very happy
1: (laughs) josh thank you it's been incredible to talk with you today appreciate you taking the time and sharing your insights uh, with all of our listeners today
0: yeah thank you for the invitation chris i'm I'm honored uh, and it was great chatting with you and let's keep in touch
1: and thank you for listening to the supply chain show if you like the show please rate and review us on apple podcasts and wherever you stream your content If you want to know more, in the meantime, check out my website, crystallee.net. Until next time.